Hello and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a human centred design practitioner based in Dublin, Ireland. Hazel White and Mike Press from Open Change in Scotland join me on the show this week and we dig a little deeper into what myself and Sarah Drummond covered in her episode about the changes in the Scottish design landscape and what triggered this. We speak more about a walkabout, a service of Ari or observational masterclass that the guys gave at Service Design Days in Barcelona recently and what's so good about these types of workshop activities and what they can lead to. Now, before we jump into the interview, I want to mention that we have a shelf load of books to give away as a thank you to all our listeners in 2018. To be one of the chance to win these books, you need to be on our newsletter, which you can subscribe on our website at thisishcd.com. And we've got books from O'Reilly Media in New York City, one of our biggest supporters, as well as exclusive This Is HCD discounts for Rosenfeld Media Books. And also have two books from the guys at Smashing Magazine. Thanks to all of those guys for giving us these books. We also have signed copies of Andy Palain's Service Design from Insights to Implementation book, as well as Jerry McGovern's latest book, Top Tasks, also signed as well. Right, let's get to it. Hazel White and Mike Press, a very warm welcome to the This Is HCD podcast. Hello there. Hello, good to hear you. Good to meet you again. You're coming from Dundee in Scotland, which uh, for the people who aren't familiar, that's on the east coast, correct? Of that's Scotland? right. Yeah. That's correct. And it's it's Scotland's sunniest city. Really? Um, it is, indeed. Uh, the only problem with that sentence is the word Scotland in there. You know, it's, it's <laughs> extremely sunny, uh, but not always warm. But uh, no, fantastic city, wonderful. And of course, we have the new v Museum of Design, which has recently opened here in Dundee. I've seen that, which is fantastic for the city. Yeah. So let's jump in and uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Um, how you describe yourselves is probably a good way of starting it. And tell us what you do. Okay, um, we describe ourselves as a service design consultancy um, who help facilitate people to do the work they want to do better. And how I got into it was I used to be a lecturer in art colleges and I taught design, I taught design at master's level. And we began to get really interesting projects in. And it was, you know, from the NHS, from local government who wanted people I suppose to start with, to design leaflets and websites. But it was at this time when John Thackera, who you interviewed recently, had written Designing in a Complex World. And the Red Team at the Design Council had kind of published their manifesto on transformational design. And there was this sense that actually designers could be tackling problems that people already had rather than sitting in studios making up problems to solve. So we pivoted our course from basically what was a finishing year for, you know, graphic designers, um, interaction designers, all sorts of different designers into a design for services course. And we worked almost exclusively on live projects. We set up a thing called the Challenge Bank and organizations, businesses came to us with what they thought was a difficulty in their business and the students worked on it. And it was amazing. And these students um, went, you know, came from all over the world and went back to Shanghai, to um, Bangalore, to Australia to actually use their skills. But there was a real issue there in that we needed them in Scotland. <laughs> yeah. The rules have been changed um, that students couldn't work. It used to be that students could carry on working for two years on their student visa. 
and that was changed and so people had to go back home and it was crazy so I decided that actually the way to spread service design in Scotland another way of doing it might be to go into organizations and train up their staff in service design tools and methods because one of the things I'd realized when we were running the course was that actually a lot of the year that the students were studying was trying to understand organizations. You know, they could pick up the tools of service design really quickly, but it was understanding the organizational context was new to them, whether that was a business or whether it was understanding the National Health Service. And that if you worked with people that were already in that context, you would hit the ground running because yeah, they knew where it was they were working. So I left the university and set up Open Change, and that's where we are now. Excellent. And Mike? Uh, I was just desperate for a job, and she gave me one. Um, no, we, I, I was also I was working at the university as well, and um, I'd been working in the university sector for 25 years, and I'd been very fortunate that I'd had a succession of really interesting challenges and opportunities to deal with and uh, briefly went into kind of you know college management and realized that wasn't for me but I, I was interested in teaching and interested in research and I've been doing that for 25 years and I think when open change had been running for a couple of years and I thought well actually let's if Hazel and I work together then what could we do if we really focused on this and uh, you know develop work that is very very interesting and importantly will make a positive difference to the city and the country that we live in and i think that's always been our aspiration you know that yeah. it's about using your skills in a way that benefits the community that you're part of and so i joined open change two years ago now and um never regretted it for one second it's been great and it enables you to draw on, you know, some of the expertise and skills that you develop in the in the university sector, but also add to that as well. And I'd been working, before I went into academia, I'd been doing, well, the two of us had been working in a variety of different industries. So it all kind of, it pulls all of that together and focuses yeah. on something which is, is extremely worthwhile. Yeah, no, there's definitely, there's a movement going on between the shift from academia to, I guess, consultancy over the last five years. I've definitely seen a lot of people moving between the two and it's it's fantastic it's great to see that that mix of thinking happening yeah but one thing that i'm just going to go back to what hazel was saying like around taking the learnings and bringing them back to you know the localized scottish market and stuff in a previous episode with sarah drummond we spoke about kickstarting a design revolution and there definitely seems to be a, a movement that has happened over the last decade in scotland definitely since I left Europe to move to Australia and since I've come back. So what do you feel has driven that? I think it's partly to do with austerity. Um, I think it's to do with government and I think it's to do with policy in that everybody knows that to run public services, you have to do things differently. And, you know, they've been through Lean and and various other programmes and actually a lot of the tools and methods of service design complement things that they're doing very well, but also give them really efficient gains in finding the the right problems to solve. You know, so finding out what people's real needs are and real barriers for accessing public services. And then if you can solve them, you have happier citizens and a side effect may well be saving money as well. 
I think that there's two other issues as well. I completely agree with all that. I think the other thing is in Scotland, and this maybe mark us out in terms of the rest of the United Kingdom, there's a collective aspiration. You know, there is a sense of civic pride and, and civic ambition, you know, whether or not, whichever side of the fence you're on with independence, that's not the point. The point is there is this civic ambition and this real genuine ambition to do things better and differently not just for the sake of being different, but because you you really want to improve things. And I think the other thing is having some key people in the country that have moved things forward. You know, looking in our field, people like Sarah Drummond and Lauren Curry, what they did with Snook was was a, an inspiration to a lot of us, frankly, you know. And I think that led people, you know, without Snook, would open change exist? Probably, but in a, in a different form. So they led the way. You've got people like Cat uh, McCauley working right at the heart of government and putting design firmly on the map. And then actually you've got politicians across the whole divide, actually. Politicians who are open to change, open to innovation, and open to new ideas. And here in this city of Dundee, we're blessed by having political leaders who are extremely open to design and working with council officers who are also open to design. So there's a kind of chemistry going on. And I think a number of different factors are leading to a really positive climate for design and innovation in Scotland. Yeah, I guess it's also identifying the champions within governments like at an MP level. I know Nicola Sturgeon over in Scotland, maybe, I don't know, like maybe I'm speaking at a turn, but Cass role in, uh, what was it, the chief design officer That's right. for the Scottish government. I guess looking at the Irish uh, government at the moment, what advice would you give to people in Ireland to, to kind of champion that type of thinking internally? Well, I think there's some good examples already because it's finding Pathfinder projects like the work that Snook have been doing in Cork and showing how that has benefited and how it's changed ways of working because that certainly worked for us in Scotland. We worked um, really closely with Dundee City Council, um, with our chief executive, chief transformation officer, all their senior team and then various different teams. And they have now been advocating that approach around the other 32 local authorities in Scotland. So instead of the service design consultancies saying this is a great way of doing things, it's people being able to say this is the change that it made for us and now we work completely differently and better. It reduces the risk for them as well. They're like, actually, well, they've got a story, a narrative to repeat back to other people in their departments and say, well, look, they're doing it. So maybe maybe we should look at doing this as well. Absolutely. And it reduces the, the sense of risk as well um, if you've seen someone else do it successfully. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think that all of that increases the pressure on all of us to be much, much better at telling stories. You know, telling the stories of how what we do and others do has a positive benefit. Um, how that benefit is then applied within communities and within you know, institutions of local government or et cetera. But we really have to be a lot better at that storytelling and putting together you know, rigorous case studies that provide evidence on the value of design in this field. No, absolutely. And that, that was one of the things that I... I mentioned when I was closing the, the Service Design Day conference, it's like having strength in the community to share these stories amongst ourselves because I think it's there's a new wave happening within service design and design as a whole and it's sharing those stories like we're doing right now so we can actually point back at it and say this is working here. 
you can use this to sell in design in other places as well. That's right. Yeah. Which is a nice segue into our topic today, which is like service design walkabout, which I didn't make it to your masterclass, but I think there might have been a lot of fanboys afterwards <laughs> in the bar. They were like, Mike Press and Hazel White, I can't wait. For them to. It was like Lenny Kravitz was walking into the bar when Mike <laughs> walked in. Everyone was literally gushing about this masterclass. And I guess, tell us a little bit about how you describe it and where it came from. I mean, it's a really simple concept. It's about getting out into the world. Um, we, we use the, this uh, quote from John Le Carre, a desk is a dangerous place from which to view the world. And lots of decisions are made by people sitting at their desks or sitting in front of their laptops, imagining how the world is. And yet getting out, even for a really short period of time, can completely change your perspective and understand how your customers experience the services that you provide. And it, I mean, it's an established technique in, in service design. It's usually called a service safari, but we think that's a bit of a colonial term. So we call it a walkabout. And, and there's different ways you can do it. The one that we did in Barcelona was going out and observing, simply just going out and observing and taking no, noticing what's happening and where the barriers and the opportunities are, and then bringing that back and analysing it to find out what insights you can make from that. And you can do that really quickly. I mean, the people in our workshop were only out for 45 minutes and they came back with some really tremendous insights. You can also build on it by going out and interviewing people, you know, as they're doing things that involves getting, you know, if you're going to be using their images or the names it involves getting consent. So it's a, another level of engagement. But you can also walk through services with people, um, which we've done in healthcare settings, you know, going through what's it like to be a patient as you're going for an appointment, etc. So there's different levels you can use it and we'll gain different kinds of insights from doing it at those different levels. So we've we've used it in in a number of different contexts. Um, we've used it in GovJam, which we've organised now twice, and is getting people to go out and walk around the streets and engage with people and so forth. But I think significantly, we've used it with leadership groups, and we were working with one local authority with their senior leadership team, about 70 people. And uh, we did the usual introduction to this is service design, this is how you can transform your services, et cetera, et cetera. This is the double diamond. Here's a bit of theory, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And after two hours, we said, and this is the middle of June and it was raining outside, and we said, right, okay, um, you've got an hour. We'd like you to go outside and talk to citizens. And you could see all the blood drained from their faces. You know, they didn't get out much. They, they were policymakers. They were managers. They tended to sit behind desks. They tended to sit in meetings. They went out perhaps slightly with a heavy heart. Uh, and they came back actually enthused by what had happened, the people that they talked to. And I think that kind of gave them different insights as to how people looked at the council, for example, because they kind of tend to be a little bit defensive, but people weren't attacking the council when they were out on the streets talking to them. And, um, yeah, actually then getting people to walk through services and, you know, go and get a bus pass. And so the, you know, council manager comes back spitting tax. He said, but I pay for that service, you know. And so, you know, I, I think if you put senior managers in the position of, going either through a walkthrough or just going out and about, it changes mindsets actually quite fundamentally. So in that sense, it turns into a very positive exercise. And it's the shared experience as well with, with your peers. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So the, the collective observation is, is a really powerful uh, method. Yeah. And I guess when they come back to the, the studio, 
what exercises follow the safari, or I don't want to call it the safari, Hazel will kill me, um, the walkabout. Sorry, Hazel. <laughs> in this, in Barcelona, we kept it very open and we actually gave them just a, a big sheet of paper and said, just map out what you discovered, you know, however feels comfortable to you, because we knew that we had a really mixed um, bunch of participants. And they all did it in different ways. Some drew, some noted things down in post-it notes, etc. But just clustering information and thinking, so this is what we saw, so what did this tell us? You know, and, you know, we could see across what the patterns were because they'd been to different, they'd been to given set tasks to do, you know, like imagine you're going to the airport um, by the tram and you've only got a credit card, you don't have any cash. Or imagine you're going to park well and you're getting the tram, but you don't speak Catalan or Spanish. So just to give them some parameters to think within. And out of all the six groups, the key things they came back with was the transport system wasn't integrated. You know, they might go to a bus stop to try and get to Park Guell, and the bus driver would actually say, well, you can't buy a ticket here. You've got to go and buy the ticket at the metro. So they'd go to the metro, and then once they were at the metro, they're thinking, well, I might as well just get a train. <laughs> they wouldn't go back to the bus station. But it was quite confusing and stressful for people because they might be waiting at a stop for a bus and not know whether it was going to be accessible because some of them were um, considering themselves to be in um, wheelchair users. The one thing that was really common and is really common in other places that we've done this as well, there's maps at the, the bus stands or in the station or whatever, and they don't say you are here. Ah, right, very <laughs> so good. You've, you've got, so you've got a map of a city, but it's based on that you've got local knowledge that you know where you are and you know where you're going to go. And yet... Yeah, the purpose of the map is to you know, to help you navigate that. So yeah, all those really simple, you know, like a simple thing of putting a sticker on a map to say you are here, actually reduces stress levels and lets someone navigate a system much more easily. And so that that sort of observation, you know, is obviously very clear in transport. But you know, when you go back to UX design or go back to other things, that whole thing of showing someone it's huge. It's huge. Yeah. So it's, it's finding those sorts of insights in a domain other than the one you normally work in, because it's much easier to be critical and observe in somewhere where you're not working than it is in your in your own place, because you can always rationalise, oh, we don't do that because. But once you've actually seen it in someone else's domain and then you come back to your own base, you can't unsee things. <laughs> You're just all, you know, yeah, no, you're true. always observing whether it's the, you know, the notices above the wash hand basin that say don't wash your mugs here in Comic Sans. And, you know, you begin to be critical. Why are we putting up passive aggressive signs? You know, And, you know, it begins to just change your mindset about how people experience everything, whether it's your customers or whether it's your peers, you know, observing being at work together. Absolutely. I was like, I'm sure it was really interesting having people who are mostly not from Barcelona anyway, conduct that type of uh, method. When I was flying back home, I, I flew Ryanair back, which was a, an unusual thing for me to do anyway. And I noticed that the people beside me were Spanish and they definitely didn't read English or speak English. And there was a sign in front of them that says, no baggage at any time, stow above. And I, I tried to say to them, says, oh, you know, your bag. And they looked at me blankly and the girl came down and there was a sign like right in front of their face and I was like, look, for someone like an airline who you know goes all around the world, it's so important to have the labeling or the, the, the wayfinding stuff in multilingual languages so it's accessible. And it, it just failed. 
and they got in trouble. And then the person came down and was like, you need to do it. There was an argument in front of me. And I was like, wow, yeah. something as simple as having, you know, you're going between Dublin and Spain, having two languages is such a no brainer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, or even having it visually. Yeah. And, and I can of some sort say no bag, yeah. Yeah. you know, all right, so guys, I'm just kind of uh, interested to see, you know, you've been doing using safaris slash walkabout, I'll be PR about that, Hazel, um, for a number of years. But what value do you feel they give to organizations that might be in low maturity? Well, I think the key advantage is that we see experiences is actually happening. Um, and we're, we're looking at people in their everyday context and it enables us to understand the everyday. I mean, I suppose what we're talking about with walkabouts is is a simple term for what other people would describe as ethnographic research. You know, we're trying to understand what are people doing in their everyday lives. And out of that, from a design context, we're particularly interested in how people face problems and difficulties, but we're also trying to identify what's good about that. You know, we were trying to identify good design solutions and approaches that can perhaps be applied elsewhere. And then when we combine that with walking and talking and we're talking to people, then they're talking as they're doing something in their own terms. It's not like, you know, sitting down with a questionnaire and asking people, tell us about the last time you went on public transport and, you know, what happened, what was your experience of it? And actually, that's all being framed by our language, our terms, our assumptions, and not that other person's. When we were actually doing the reconnaissance in Barcelona, a couple were obviously having a massive difficulty in trying to figure out where they were and where they were going on the tram and asked for our advice. And so that was a great opportunity to, to talk to people about what was wrong with the navigation and the signage with the tram system and so forth. But they were talking to us in terms of, you know, they want to get to a particular destination and they were they were tourists and so forth. So it's this thing about... Seeing experiences is actually happening and not someone's recollection of it and also being able to discuss that from the other person's own terms. So those are the key values, really. Yeah. So such an important part of our jobs is helping change mindsets. So how do you feel this method has actually helped do that? By connecting senior leaders um, with people that are working at the front line, um, it makes them understand what the issues are. And we often start any sort of work by talking to the senior leadership team about the benefits of this approach and how it changes mindsets. And, and one way that we do that is we, we differentiate between troublemakers and radicals. And uh, this comes actually from the uh, National Health Service, NHS, School for Change Agents, and they, they make this difference between troublemakers and radicals. And um, Before you go on, tell us what a troublemaker is, because I know I've been called a troublemaker before. <laughs> well, we obviously, we start all of our workshops saying we know that there's not a single troublemaker in the room. However, we know that there's lots of radicals. And I guess troublemakers are the people that, you know, we might know a few at work or whatever, people who complain, people who are focused on themselves, who are angry about change. You know, everything's going to hell in a handcart and it's affecting me in a bad way and nothing will ever get better. They're pessimists. And once we spend five minutes with them, you know, we begin to lose the will to live. You know, we feel all the energy draining away from us. They fixate on problems and they're very often alone. Radicals are different. 
Radicals aren't complaining. They're creating. They're thinking about alternatives. They're focused not on themselves, but on a mission, a positive mission for change. And they're passionate about that. And whilst they recognize that, you know, their world, uh, their small part of the world and the world in general is facing some massive challenges, the human race has generally been pretty good at solving them, sometimes pretty late in the day. But we can be optimistic that positive progressive change, you know, kind of goes on and they generate energy around them and they attract people to them. So collaboration is absolutely core to being a radical. So we kind of, we turn that into, in our workshops into a bit of a joke. You know, we know you're not troublemakers, but this is what a radical is. And it is about looking at another term that we use is, is the definition from uh, Nigel Cross, who used to be one of the founders of the whole idea of design thinking and his notion that design is about a sense of constructive discontent. You know, we're discontent with the world. We're discontent with things around us. But hey, let's be constructive. Let's think of alternatives. Let's create alternatives yeah. and solve those problems. So that's that's the mindset that we try and encourage people to be in once they go out on the road. Yeah, it's those behaviors that you're trying to reinstill that are integral to the success of any of this kind of taking off internally, I guess. Yeah. So look, we're coming towards the end of the episode. And what I'm going to do is going to ask three questions. Either one of you can start. So the first question I'm going to ask is, what is the one professional skill that you wish you were better at and why? I wish I was better at writing um, because, <laughs> yeah, just you know, and having the time to actually capture what you've done. But I think, t- I think technology is kind of on our side with that because now I can just talk and then saying stuff away to get transcribed. And that's, that's yeah, a true. real advantage for me. Yeah. Nice, Mike. Um, I wish I was better at making things. I'm not very good at, at kind of hands-on craft. I actually, when I was, when I was eight, I got a Blue Peter badge for, for listeners outside the UK. Blue Peter is a kids TV program and they used to give out badges. They probably still do, uh, for achievement. I got a Blue Peter badge because my dad had made a bird table and I wrote a poem about it. And I got the badge for that. And, and Hazel afterwards said, yeah, that's kind of the story of your life. You know, other people do the creative labors and you just get accolades by writing about it. So I wish I was good at making things. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a great one. All right. So the second question is, what is the one thing that you wish you were able to banish from the industry and why? Jumping to solutions. We've Got this phrase that we actually picked up from another um, service design agency based in Scotland called Thrive. And they talk about solutioneering, you know, where people just go straight into solutions without trying to actually dig down and find what the problems are. You know, and it's this kind of quick fix thing, right? We're going to do an innovation day and we'll come up from, with some answers and we'll just go and implement yeah. them. So, yeah, solutioneering, I'd banish that. A solutioneering. Nice. Mike? I wouldn't banish anything. I, I actually think, sorry to get serious for a moment, but I think we live in an age of, of extreme intolerance now and we all want to ban attitudes or behaviours that we don't like or we feel uncomfortable with. And I suppose what I would banish is intolerance. You know, we, we have to tolerate different perspectives and different views and engage with that, I guess. Nice. And the very final question is what advice would you give to design talent for the future? So like service designers, UX designers, fashion designers, what advice would you give them? Get away from your desk as often as you can. Nice. And Mike? 
Uh, yeah, I would go with that as a sound piece of advice and believe in yourself, you know, and I think that's what we, as when we were educators, that was what we said to all of our students, believe in yourself. And uh, that was the job that we were paid to do was to believe in them. And, um, you know, hopefully by believing in them, then they believe in themselves. And then that gives them the confidence to do things and to try things that maybe they wouldn't have tried before. And a really great example of that is Lauren Curry, who set up Snook with Sarah. I didn't know what service design was till Lauren decided to do her master's project on it. And things that students should realise is that their lecturers learn more from them than they probably ever learned from their lecturers. True. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way to end the conversation. Um, so, Mike, Hazel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, Jerry. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com, where you can request to join the Slack channel and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm